Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. And we're not just proving that an award season is a year-round event because we have awards to talk about. The Emmy nominations came out today, so we're here to talk about them. Uh, I'm here with uh, Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. So this is a it's exciting because the Emmy nominations were announced on a Thursday and our episodes come out on a Thursday. So for once, the timing actually worked out. So we're also going to talk about this week's new movie, War for the Planet of the Apes, and the upcoming return of Game of Thrones, which is very exciting. First, we have some awards nominations to dig through. So Richard and Joanna, you guys wrote our predictions for the website. How, how well did you guys do on your predictions? I think we did pretty well, actually. As, yeah. as always happens, especially with the Emmys, just because there are so many categories, there were a few, like random surprises or snubs or whatever you know i didn't see the dolly parton dolly parton's christmas of many colors and then there's colon something else that was nominated in like best tv movie which i didn't see that coming so there was stuff like that but i (laughs) I think for the most part I, i did well how about you joanna how did you feel i did pretty well but i voted with my i predicted with my heart a few times yeah that i knew i shouldn't have but i wanted to anyway because hey why not so, uh, you know, the com- the almost complete shutout of the leftovers handicapped some of my predictions for sure. But um, there's your lesson yeah, to, no, no, no. to never follow your heart. Yeah, never just in all things. Never be passionate about yeah, anything. No. Just you know, go with your head. Yeah. So, was that the biggest heartbreaker for you, Joanna? That the leftovers got, even though Carrie Coon, who I know you've been rooting for, she got nominated for Fargo, but not the leftovers. Yeah, Carrie got nominated for the wrong show, and that happens all the time, I think, unless you're in doubt and you get nominated for both of your shows, The Handmaid's Tale and The Leftovers. But yeah, The Leftovers not getting nominated in drama, no nomination for Justin Thoreau, and no nomination for Carrie for her work on that. I think that was my biggest heartbreaker. Also, I would say biggest head-scratcher for me was the fact that Jonathan Banks got nominated for the third year for Better Call Saul when... He didn't have much to do this season, and Michael McKean really killed it on Saul this year. So that that to me felt like people just voting for Jonathan Banks or nominating Jonathan Banks because they're used to nominating Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike Ehrman Trout, and is great. But the, that that just did not make any sense to me. Yeah, isn't that something we talk about with the Emmys all the time, where they just kind of rubber stamp the same nominees over and over again, which is how you get like like all credit due to Julie Louis Dreyfus, who's amazing, but she like just keeps getting nominated, and winning for Veep, etc. Or like the House of Cards repeats, or yeah, wait, I thought Michael Kelly, I thought Michael Kelly got killed off of House of Cards like years ago. No, no, Doug Stamper came back. Yeah. Oh God. And, but but Ben Mendelsohn, who literally did get killed off of Bloodline years ago, is yeah. nominated in the guest category, which if you want crazy. something weird. Uh, you know, I mean, there's been talk about, like, how to kind of fix this problem. It's gotten somewhat better in recent years just because there's such a variety of shows now and they've and the, the Academy is getting more has been getting more pressure to, you know, because they want to be with it. And so they don't want to, you know, nominate just Modern Family and have Modern Family win every year. But you know, so there's been some talk of like, uh, you know, at a certain point, if they've won enough Emmys, should they be ineligible or should they have the kind of graciousness to not submit themselves? And that's the thing is like these people are are all submitting themselves. It's not like the Academy just plucking them out of thin air. So, you know, I, I, I at this point, it would be nice if like Julie Louis-Dreyfus would maybe gracefully bow out or something like that. If modern, I mean, modern family, like, you know, Ty Burrell getting another nomination for that. Like, it's just like, but, but, you know, it's not like the old years when it was Monk and Frasier and just all the same shows winning year after year. There is more variety now, which is good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing that I thought was really interesting is, 
you know, FX had this huge year at the Emmys last year in terms of nominations and wins. And I sort of expected this to be kind of a down year for FX, the Atlanta feud stuff aside, but seeing nominations for stuff like Pamela Adlon for better things, or like not just Louis Anderson for baskets, but also Zach Galifianakis for baskets. Or that you got like David Thewlis and Ewan McGregor for Fargo. Yeah, a lot of Fargo, which Fargo, you know, this was not its best season. So, you know, I, I really feel like the Emmy voters are still on the FX train, I guess is what I'll say. So, but Pamela Adlon, I am flabbergasted and delighted by that nomination. So it's great. Great news. Yeah. Any other particular like, holy crap, I can't believe this really happened uh, favorites for you guys? Pamela Adlon is a really good one. You know, there are three actresses from SNL nominated, uh, Kate McKinnon, Leslie Jones, and Vanessa Bayer um, in the, you know, supporting actress comedy series uh, category. Um, and, you know, all, all are good in the show. But I think Vanessa Bayer has been a real workhorse for that show for a, for many years now and has not this is like, and it's nice to see her getting her due because she's kind of, she's like Keenan Thompson who also got nominated, not in an acting category, but for writing the lyrics from a song from SNL. So after he, <laughs> you know his many, many years on the show is finally nominated right. at least for something. But you know, Vanessa Bayer, like it, it, that, that, that was, I was happy to see that. And this is her last season. So it's yeah. a nice like, Oh, right. Right. That's a shame. So I'm maybe part of the problem in that season three of Transparent kind of uh, came and went for me. I haven't caught it yet, but I love that Katherine Hahn got nominated for that show. She's never been Emmy nominated before. And I think her character in those first two seasons was so great and so like essential to kind of refract all the craziness of the family at the center of it. I was really excited about that one. Oh, yeah. And another one I wanted to mention was Michael K. Williams for The Night Of. It seemed inevitable that Riz Ahmed and um, John Turturro were going to get nominated for that for lead actor uh, in a in a limited series because they were so good. But uh, but Michael K. Williams, who play, who is supporting and plays this kind of prison mentor to Riz Ahmed's character, um, is great and has been great for years in many things. So it's really nice to see him uh, get recognized for that. Has he, was he never nominated for The Wire or anything like that? Well, or The Wire Boardwalk? was only ever nominated for two Emmys for writing. Oh, that's Those are the right. only two nominations that show ever got, which is insane. Famous. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, some someday we'll think of that about The Leftovers is what I believe. Yes. Uh, it'll, it'll join The Wire and Buffy, The Vampire Slayer, as classics that were never quite given their due. Um, the other thing that I was not surprised to see but pleased to see was, you know, some, some usual suspects from Westworld, but... Westworld got so not shut out by the Golden Globes, but just not showered in the way that I expected the Globes to shower Westworld, which they love to do with something new. We talk about that all the time, how the Golden Globes love something new. And so I definitely thought Westworld, Evan Rachel Wood, Tandy Newton were going to get showered. Anthony Hopkins didn't even get nominated for a Golden Globe, but he's nominated for an Emmy. You know, so this, this is the HBO presence in absence of, Game of Thrones is for Westworld. So there you go. Yeah. I want to uh, draw everyone's attention to the guest actor categories, which are at the very bottom of our list on VF.com. I just think the guest nominations can be so fun where you get like Riz Ahmed for girls is up against Dave Chappelle for hosting Saturday Night Live. Cause I don't know what you do to choose that, <laughs> but you get like Angela Bassett nominated for master of none. She's in that one amazing episode. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who everyone kind of thought might get in for Atlanta is in for this is us as a guest actor. I didn't know he was on it. Like I said, Ben Mendelsohn is somehow nominated. And then uh, for you, Joanna, I think we talked about Allison Wright because of her roles on both The Americans and Feud. And she's nominated for The Americans. It's her first nomination. It's great. That's one of those things where 
I think everyone was so excited to see that character come back because they weren't sure she would. That, you know, it was one of those, yay, she's here. Alexis Bledel also gets a, a guest actress nomination. And I think she really did amazing work in The Handmaid's Tale, uh, so much so that they're improbably bringing her back for season two, even though she should be dead. So, you know, Alexis Bledel getting a really deserved Emmy nomination is great. Uh, and then there's Barb from Stranger Things, which is surprising. Yes, there is. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, that is a wild category because you get like uh, Cicely Tyson and Ann Dowd who are just like these veterans who have been around forever and doing amaz- amazing performances up against uh, Barb. Yeah, and um, elsewhere in the guest category, there is a nice kind of posthumous nomination for Carrie Fisher on on Catastrophe, the Amazon show. And she is great on it, was great on it. But, she is, um, that, that, yeah. That's nice. I, I would imagine, I mean, she'll probably, they'll probably give that to her posthumously. I don't know. But yeah, that's a great category too with Bassett and Becky Ann Baker for who did, you know, was basically a, a main cast member of Girls kind of at, at a certain point. I mean, she was in so many episodes, but was always great on it. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I, th- you're right, Katie. Those guest categories are, are often pretty fun. So, so what do we follow between now and the and the Emmys themselves? I mean, I think the FX narrative is really interesting. We've been talking about the uh, lead actress in a TV movie category forever because that's Big Little Lies versus Feud. I still don't really know who they'll go with there. I don't know what else are you guys gonna be watching. The Emmys are in mid September, so we've got a while. Um, I think in terms of in terms of Westworld, you know, tying SNL for the most amount of no- nominations at twenty two. I think for me, the narrative there is that could easily be a show that gets a ton of nominations and really doesn't win any of the major categories that it's up for. It could. And if it does, then I think that indicates something you know, good for season two of the show. But so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be curious about that for sure. And I'm really curious to see if Samantha Bee can win in the uh, variety talk category, which kind of surprisingly did not include Seth Meyers, who has had a very good kind of trenchant political year of his show, as opposed to nominee Jimmy Kimmel, who really hasn't. Um, I mean, he's been fine, but, you know, Myers has been a standout. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to root for Samantha B. I hope I hope that she can can ride this to the to the stage in September. Yeah. John Oliver and Samantha B. getting nominated really feels like and Fallon not getting nominated yeah. really does feel like some sort of referendum on the role of politics in this particular category. So that's interesting. Yeah. And I'm, I, I guess the thing, the thing that I'm most fascinated by is this Sterling K Brown transition from, you know, the OJ show people versus OJ Simpson to this is us. And a lot of people expect that he might win for this is us. And I'm just, I'm really delighted and impressed because he's very much deserves it. It's so hard to break out in a show like that, People versus O.J. Simpson, and then land a successful follow-up. And he really seems to have done that. And so I'm, you know, all the luck and best wishes for him because he's so great. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, Richard, you interviewed Courtney B. Vance for The Mummy. So, I mean, he's had a long career and will have mm-hmm. a long career afterwards, but uh, definitely did not land something on the level of This Is Us to kind of follow up on that momentum. Yeah. And, you know, just looking at all these nominations for This Is Us between regular cast members, guest cast members, I mean, you know, I don't know how many people outside of our sort of wonky sphere really pay attention to these nominations. They might pay attention to the winners. But certainly to me, it's like, all right, I got to watch this show because, you know, or at least I've seen one episode. I saw the pilot episode of This Is Us. But now I'm just like, now I'm curious because this is a deep roster of nominees. Uh, it's not just like one actor that people like. So it, it, you know, I think that sometimes the Emmy nominations can do that in terms of peaking interest. And it's certainly done that for me for This Is Us. 
Well, we will probably continue keeping an eye on all the crazy for your consideration stuff that goes on between now and the Emmys, and um, there will be a lot going on at VanityFair.com, too. So in the meantime, go check out the full list of nominees and uh, then let us know what you're excited about. We'd like to hear it. So we'll stick with TV for a little bit longer. Uh, Joanna, you are recording in Los Angeles, uh, not because you're there for the Emmy nominations. You didn't, like, camp out outside the... uh, conference room where they announced it or anything but you were there for the game of thrones premiere which is really exciting and uh the show returns to hbo on sunday it's an event we're all waiting for you can't really talk about the episode that you saw at all but tell me about what the vibe was to be in the middle of all that action yeah i mean it was it was really nice i've actually never seen game of thrones on the big screen they've done a few imax screenings but i've never seen it in that format and was kind of incredible also to be in you know a packed house of people excited to be there and in the tank and laughing and screaming and clapping usually i am all by myself on a sunday night watching game of thrones and sort of like frantically writing about it so to see it in that context is really really incredible most of the show stars were there a lot of sort of celebrity fans were there and then of course you know the unwashed media like myself um, and yeah, and then there was this bonkers after party across the street on the top of a parking garage that was just one of the craziest things I've ever seen. That's so LA that it's like it's a beautiful party, but it's somehow on top of a parking garage. Some someone told me that that parking garage is where people usually park for jury duty in town. So <laughs> there you go. But yeah, there was like a massive iron throne that was made to look like it was made out of snow. There were, you know, people on stilts walking around. There was a huge dance floor that was painted to look like the map of Westeros. You know, it was it was just it was a crazy time. But everyone was just having the best time, you know, and it really, you know, the the premiere opened with a mini concert um, from composer Ramin Javadi, who's been touring with this sort of concert experience, Game of Thrones, and he did a sort of a mini version of that. Casey Bloys, um, you know, director of programming at HBO, gave a, a little intro. And it just really did. You felt the sense of occasion and the sense of import of the show for HBO, which we all know. But to see all that sort of money out there on the table was really uh, interesting. Yeah, it sounded like a nice party, though. I thought it was a little on the nose that at the end they murdered half the guests. Like that felt. <laughs> you know, they had it coming, Richard. I, I guess so. that's true. Yeah. Well, that's the only way you can keep them from giving away spoilers. That's is you right. kill them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. No, there was a really cute little introduction before the episode started. The the lights went down. There's a voiceover that Kit Harrington recorded that was like a little mock version of the Night's Watch vow, but it was like, you know, we shall repeat no spoilers, hold no phones, spread no rumors on social media. And it was really cute. And then he ended it with something like, you know, we take this very seriously and I know you will as well. And then Rose Leslie recorded a little Rose Leslie, who played Egret and is Kit Harrington's real life girlfriend who was there with him, recorded a little, you know, nothing Jon Snow right at the end of it. It was it was adorable. It was just really well done. Yeah, do you feel like this is going to be the last Game of Thrones premiere that isn't, like, full of terror for HBO? Like, they can have fun now because they have one more season to go, but next year it's going to be like, oh, shit, we have to come up with something else. If I mean, if it is, even is next year, because there's rumor that it won't be until 2019. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess it depends on where they are with the spinoffs uh, and how confident they feel about that or what the moment, continued momentum behind Westworld is, if they feel on firmer footing there. But, uh, you know, there's no, they, they sort of erroneously, they keep doing this. They keep calling Game of Thrones the biggest show in the world. It's not. Alas, that is The Walking Dead. 
but HBO has just decided that this is what they're going to call their show. That's fine. Fake news. It's fine. <laughs> well, their episodes are longer than Walking Dead's episodes. So oh, in that sure. sense, it's Yeah, bigger. physically <laughs> biggest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but so Casey Boys, you know, like once again was like, this is the biggest show in the world. And I think they will miss being able to even er- slightly erroneously announce that because I-, I really doubt that even if Westworld is their most successful show or even if they're like Better Call Saul-ish you know, spinoff does well. I, I really doubt that anything is ever going to be as big as Game of Thrones again. So, well, yeah, it just feels like we're completely past the era in which that can even happen. And like, you know, God knows I'll be proven wrong and everyone gets really into like glow season two or something. But, you know, Game of Thrones premiered in such a different time for television and uh, it, it, it paved the way for what's happening right now. But I just I mean, even this is us like I don't know what the numbers are on it, but it's like nothing compared to the, you know, the musty TV of the heyday. But even something like Empire, which has a huge audience, huge ratings it doesn't, for some reason, it doesn't feel like as big. I don't know. I, I don't know what it is about Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead. But even, I think Game of Thrones even f- feels bigger than The Walking Dead just because there's more to talk about. Whereas The Walking Dead, it's like live, die, repeat sort of thing. But I, I don't know. I, well, yeah, I feel very much like we'll not see it's like again. So I'm really grateful to have been there for, for this episode. So when we talking about going into the next season, like just kind of generally, I mean, Joanna, you've written a lot for the site about what to expect and what might happen and kind of catching us up. But like what, so we're heading toward kind of the end game of the series. What like is on the table? I mean, just for the, for both the show in terms of HBO's future and just like what kind of storytelling are we going to see? Well, it's funny. I was talking to Todd Vanderbilt of Vox about this at the after party last night. And he he sort of expressed some concern about this season in terms of a lot of times when a show has a planned ending, your penultimate season is a lot of table setting for the big finale. Like everybody walking toward the wall or something like that. A lot of players moving to where they need to be. So slowly edging north or whatever it is. But, you know, without spoiling the premiere, what I will say is that, you know, I see the table setting that's in the premiere. I see the moving of players into their positions, but I also see an effort on behalf of the show, even though they have a shorter season this year, of really lacing in rewarding thematic uh, elements to that table setting sort of storytelling. So, you know, if they keep that up from what I saw in the premiere, I think this could be one of their best seasons, if a little bit more spectacle heavy. I mean, this is something that a lot of Game of Thrones fans are talking about. They keep they keep promising all these battles. The dragons are bigger. The white walkers are closer. The fire is whatever. And uh, that's not what Game of Thrones started as, right? It started as a lot of people talking in rooms. They didn't have the budget for it yet. (laughs) Right. But their budget got bigger. And then, you know, their battle episodes became famous. And so now I, you know, in my lazier moments, I like to call it the Michael Bayification of Game of Thrones, right? It's, I feels like a different show now, but that doesn't make it a bad show. It just makes it a different show, you know? So Richard, how are you feeling about Game of Thrones these days? You know, I um, am oddly excited. Um, I say oddly because I'm kind of known, well, at least, uh, I mean, to my, I'm known to myself as someone who gets um, TV fatigue uh, pretty easily. And even with the show kind of as sweeping and grand as Game of Thrones, you know, there was a season, I think, 
two seasons ago where I was really just feeling pretty done with it. Oh, season five. Yeah, yeah. But then last season, you know, really had had something to it. And then by the end, kind of really exciting finales uh, or finale scenes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm also looking forward to it because it's big transporting entertainment that um, has absolutely nothing to do with our world. And even though some shows that do have to do with our world have been comforting in in recent you know times, I am eager for something that really just is its own entity. I know you can draw al- allegorical you know parallels and yeah. Whatnot, I was about but... to say I have, a, I have I have a million hot takes to show you. <laughs> no, I, I understand that you can, but you know, choose not to. But I can them. absolutely yeah, exactly. choose not to engage with it and just be like, oh, this is about some other place. Um, and you know, Ross, do that at the New York Times might want to try to tell me on Twitter that. Uh, I'm watching the show because I secretly want to be ruled by a king or whatever. But like, no, I watch it because it's dragons and it's fun and I'm rooting for Sansa. Yeah, I was. I honestly wanted to close it by saying who we're all rooting for this season. Oh, like uh, Sansa all the way always has been my favorite character in the books. Uh, I'm 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 hope that I hope that they don't like turn her like evil, you know, or not evil, but like bloodthirsty, you know, Joanna, I think you've expressed yourself as Team Jamie. Team Jamie Lannister. I think Jamie Lannister is the most interesting character this season because I think he there's the most doubt about which way he could go redemption wise. So, yeah, I couldn't say that I'm pulling for Cersei because I think anyone who watches the show knows there's no way she succeeds. But uh, I think she's the person I'm most intrigued to watch in terms of what happens, especially since uh, I think based on the show's geography, like Daenerys will be heading her direction pretty soon, like maybe sooner than Jon Snow. I don't know. Joanna, you can tell me if I'm just reading the maps wrong. Uh, but I'd be why would I tell that. you anything? Why? Well, that's literally like the map of Westeros, like not a spoiler. But yeah, Dan- Daenerys, if she lands where you know, if she goes back to her ancestral home, will technically be closer than Jon Snow to Cersei. Yes. Uh, also, Yara Greyjoy. I want to see what happens to her. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, Game of Thrones will be back on Sunday. It's seven episodes, right? Yep. So yeah, we'll- but the last two are like supersized episodes. They're like. 70 and 80 minute long episodes so it's basically eight episodes well it feels like since big little lies ended there hasn't really been a tv show that was this fun to talk about so obviously you'll be hearing more from us on game of thrones uh as the summer continues and we take our refuge in the icy north so before we end this week's episode richard you were talking earlier about allegorical uh depictions of our world and uh there is a big apocalyptic movie out in the theaters this weekend and War for the Planet of the Apes is the third in this kind of new Planet of the Apes franchise, and I think always has seemed kind of grim and sad because it's about the destruction of humanity. Uh, but Richard, you loved it, and uh, I'm intrigued by uh, by what you see in this franchise that maybe the rest of the world isn't paying attention to because it's not celebrated the way that a lot of other movie franchises are. It's not, and uh, as I argued in a review that's up on VF.com, it really should be, especially the the, the, the two most recent ones. Uh, the first movie, uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, is 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 well done and, and in- intriguing, but it's really more of a sort of amuse bouche before like the the bigger meal, uh, which is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which came out in 2014 and um, kind of details the first real war between. Uh, apes, these kind of, you know, genetically, you know, heightened apes who can now talk and have other sort of abilities th- th- comparable to humans go to war with humans. And then this third one takes place sort of, I guess, is sort of in the middle of that war, sort of toward the tail end of it. And so it's not cheery stuff at all, um, you know, which can be make for hard viewing. But there's something really classically just dramatic about them. They have these, the, the stakes feel really heavy and really high and well realized and and you're really not rooting for the humans, by the way. You're, you're, you know, the apes are, are, are absolutely the protagonists, especially in the third film. 
And that would sort of be a disaster if the special effects, um, you know, it's a lot of motion capture performance with the apes, uh, if the special effects weren't up to, to snuff, but uh, they really are. And, you know, I'm not a huge CGI advocate. Um, I like practical effects and things like that. But in this case, I mean, what they're able to do is like wizardry. It's really incredible. You know, Andy Serkis uh, is, is plays the lead um, chimpanzee Caesar. Uh, and they just ring these incredibly emotional performances out of these computer creations. Well, they're sort of hybrid between a, a human performance and a computer thing. And so, yeah, they just have this really earnest kind of old-fashioned heft to them. There's there's no real cynicism. I mean, there's no real sort of ironic detachment or anything like that. It's it, They're very earnest. They're very straightforward. And they tell a really big story that, while not happy, is is pretty compelling. You know, it's interesting that this is coming a week before Dunkirk, that this mm-hmm. is kind of the, the period of just like grim war movies that are sagas about our current state. But from what I'm hearing about Dunkirk, like, it sounds like both of them are like, the right kind of grim and dark. Like, I mean, we're all kind of like scarred from Suicide Squad and it feels like everyone wants their movies to be a little cheerier. But, you know, the way like Wonder Woman tackled World War One, it seems it's, we're getting some really interesting movies dealing with heavy subject matter like that. Yeah, I think as long as you're dealing with that subject matter in a thoughtful way and as, you know, um, where where death actually really means something and where there isn't this kind of arch, you know, like I said, ironic detachment where Suicide Squad tried. I mean, th- it's a witless, stupid movie and, and you know, it, it even gets that wrong. But but something like like the Apes movies, you know, uh, director Matt Reeves, who did the last two, they just they're they're taken very seriously. And I think that that is kind of surprisingly rare and it looks to me that dunkirk i'm seeing it early next week it looks to me that that kind of is along those same lines i mean nolan is not known to be a humorist or 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 really you know to be steeped in irony i think that the thing that could affect dunkirk versus apes is that nolan is also not a terribly emotional filmmaker you know you know he has his kind of you know absent dad or dead whatever you know wife he has his like dramatic plot lines but they always feel a little bit shoehorned in because he's like oh right i need to have a human element to this but he's really more concerned with all the technical kind of stuff so with dunkirk where that's a real life thing you know it, it this is not kind of hatched out of his imagination he's depicting real life events i'm curious to see how that kind of human factor registers the way that it did 20 almost 20 years ago with saving Private ryan well, Harry Styles is in this one, so. Well, I mean, yeah, that's really what I'm talking about. <laughs> the human factor being Harry Styles' hair how, and how, how it looks. How many boys does Harry kiss in the movie? You know. <laughs> um, I should point out, though, that you know that Harry Styles in Dunkirk is played by Andy Serkis, so it's not <laughs> technically Harry. Are it's they just, part of the same cinematic universe as uh, Apes? I, I think in the sequel to Dunkirk, they'll tie that in. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is on a beach, and apes ride horses on the beach. That's so exactly it all right. most elaborate cinematic universe going today. Well, we'll have fun next week talking about Dunkirk because it's kind of maybe the first like awards contender of the summer, even though it's opening in summer. But in the meantime, I mean, I guess we can like beat our little drum. It feels like Apes has not gotten like the awards recognition it deserved, even though I feel like the first time around, like there was talk about putting Andy Serkis in there the way they had him for Gollum. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't get my hopes up for the third time around, but it does seem like something worth, uh, you know, if we keep saying it, maybe someone will listen. Yeah. And I think another thing to keep an eye on with that movie uh, in terms of how it could function in, I mean, the special effects deserve to be in there. Andy Serkis deserves to be in there. But, um, you know, what do you 
Harrelson has been having a good couple years and he has a movie coming up this fall called the, or the, later this summer rather called The Glass Castle which is from the um, Short Term 12 director where he looks to be like in the hunt for a sort of supporting actor thing there and he's really he plays the villain in in, in War for the Planet of the Apes and, and he's he's pretty commanding so like he, that could kind of factor into a broader narrative about like Woody Harrelson kind of having not a not a comeback but you know I've been rooting for Woody to get an Oscar since I think it was the messenger, right? That like mm-hmm. it felt like it could have happened. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm with you team Woody. Let's do it. Well, it feels like he's had such a kind of like a wide ranging career that like you forget that he is two time nominated at this point. I mean, he got nominated for the people versus Larry Flint back in 1997. So he's got yeah. like a, a history there, even though like, you know, recently you think of uh, the hunger games more than anything else. Yeah, and he had a movie that was at Sundance this year called Wilson that went to Netflix um, that looked for a moment to be something for him and it didn't pan out. But um, that doesn't mean that uh, he's he's we should count him out this year because he's got, uh, you know, oh, he's also in the new Martin McDonough movie, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. So this could be a big year for him. So I think that like this Apes movie is kind of starting that. Plus with the like with the extra push, like star quality of Han Solo film being on the horizon and i mean it's interesting he gave an interview i think it was to thr recently where he talked about turning down the hunger games multiple times and turning down the han solo movie a couple times because we were we were theorizing if he has you know residuals from cheers he doesn't he's not really thirsty for work and so then it's then that makes it feel like anything woody harrelson does is because he really wants to do it and that um that's very fascinating yeah, he's had a very interesting kind of peripatetic journeyman career, but uh, you know, and some some fallow periods and some fertile, and this is a really good good moment for him, I think. God, it's crazy that Woody Harrelson was on Cheers. He's been famous for so long. So long. <laughs> okay, let's wrap this episode up. Well, that does it for this week's Any Day episode of Little Gold Men. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it. And as we start heading into award season, both with the Emmys and Oscars right around the corner, believe it or not, we could use the help and the new listeners if you are willing to leave us a review and help us do that. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about the Emmy nominations and apes and thrones and everything else. Uh, we're also all on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard? Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell, and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best way to describe having somehow made it through half of 2017 goes to Joanna Robinson. I am flabbergasted and delighted. 